Did you eat dinner together with your family when you were growing up? Did you eat with your family when your children were little? We talked to Anne Fischel about the Family Dinner Project and about the value of eating together. It's on tip of the tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Anne Fischel. She is co-founder of the Family Dinner Project. She directs the Family and Couples Therapy Program at Massachusetts General Hospital and is an Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the Harvard Medical School. She has written Home for Dinner and Eat, Laugh, Talk, the Family Dinner Playbook. Welcome, Anne. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Liz. So I want to start by jumping right in. I want to ask you how you decided to uh, focus in on family dinner and to co-found the family family dinner project. Yes. So I think whenever you're really passionate about something, you can look back and see that there were many streams that led you to this flowing river. Um, And that's certainly the case with me. Um, I think for me, I wanted to I was struck by the ways that family meals could be almost an annex or uh, another place besides my office where families gather in a reliable way. And I had an epiphany years ago where I was working with a family. It was a father and son, and it was a particularly tense and uh, difficult session. It was a teenage son. He didn't want to be there. And he wasn't really talking and his father wasn't really talking. And right before the session, I had put a roast chicken in the oven. Um, This was in my home office. I put a roast chicken in in, in the oven and come downstairs to see the family from six to seven. And about halfway through, we all started to smell that chicken, (laughs) you know, lemony, garlicky, delicious chickeniness. Uh And I was a little embarrassed because it felt like kind of a boundary crossing. And then to make matters worse, the teenage son turned to me and he said, could we stay for dinner? (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) That's crossing. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. I thought, you know, of course you can't stay for dinner. And not only that, but this is going, this terrible session we're having is going right through your dinner hour. So you're probably going to leave here, go pick up some fast food. And in that moment, I thought, gosh, I should just stop this terrible session and say, here, here's a cookbook, go home, cook together, eat together, you'll be so much better off. Um, and I, I didn't do that because I didn't have the wherewithal then, and it would have been kind of unprofessional. Um, but it started the wheels turning. Was there a way that I could use the benefits of family dinner um, 
to bring some of the very same benefits that I was trying to make happen in family therapy, sometimes not that well. Um, and then I, you know, I became aware of this very exciting body of research um, that kind of emboldened me that, yes, there was something very powerful about families having dinner with one another. And in fact, the re 25 years of scientific research kind of bears this out, that when families eat together, it's not only good for their nutrition and their physical health, but kids do better in school. They have bigger vocabularies when they're young kids and there are tremendous mental health benefits. So it's associated with lower risk of substance use and eating disorders and depression and anxiety. And I, I started to feel like, whoa, you know, I could almost be out of business as a family <laughs> therapist if more families could access family dinners. Um, but that's, you know, that's the sort of the key, the, or the key hurdle. Um, and that's where the family dinner project comes in because it's not so easy to access family dinners. You know, it's a, it's a simple idea, but it's not so easy, particularly for modern busy, um, families. And so the family dinner project was to, to say, yes, research is why they're so important, but let's help with the how. How can we make it more doable, uh, more fun, more engaging, more meaningful uh, for more families to get all these tremendous benefits? And so tell us how we can, because I, I agree with you, it's really hard looking at modern life where kids <laughs> have so many things after school and parents sometimes have two jobs and there are all kinds of things that are obstacles to everybody eating together. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you've named probably the, the most common one um, as I've gone kind of around the country for the last, I don't know, 14 years talking to families um, and also in my practice, uh, the same obstacles pretty much come up over and over again. And the, the number one is, we don't have enough time or our schedules don't coalesce. We can't come together at 6.30 every night. So we just don't, um, or we bother to do it and then it's not fun. We have, we fight at the table. There's too much conflict. Mm -hmm. um, or I make a, you know, I go to the trouble to make dinner and nobody wants to eat it because we have so many selective or picky eaters at the table, or I don't know how to cook. I didn't grow up knowing how to do that or um, there are financial constraints. It's hard to uh, afford healthy food to make for my family. So these are some of the, the common challenges. And, you know, as I've talked to so many families, I've picked up a lot of great ideas that I, you know, have been able to pass along to other families um, so for example, the, the one that you brought up, you know, busy schedules or schedules that don't coalesce. Um, one thing that we've spent some time on at the family dinner project is building out resources for family breakfast. Um, because a lot of families who can't do dinner can do breakfast or they can do a couple of breakfasts a week. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we have a seven minute breakfast because that turns out to be the amount of time if you don't press your snooze alarm 
you get seven minutes. Um, so we thought, what could we do with seven minutes? And so we have conversation starters and games to play um, and easy uh, breakfast foods to make for families who can't manage those uh, later in the day meals. Um, you know, another idea we've heard from families is uh, no one eats alone. So it doesn't have to be the whole family to be a family dinner. Mm -hmm. It can be any two people. Um, and so, so some families will make one meal and different combinations of family members will sit down together, maybe two at a time, maybe overlapping um, to have dessert with one another. But it's sort of deconstructing the family meal so that the idea is it doesn't have to be everybody every night all at once. Um, so that's another kind of workaround that we've heard. I think I think that um, that that is a really interesting thing because in my mind, and this is because of the way I grew up, so um, this is influencing me. But in in my mind, part of what is family meal is fixing the meal together, and um, and you know even the chores after like washing up and putting things away and all of that. And um, uh, I, I feel like now when we talk about family meal, you can pick up takeout and put it on a plate <laughs> and that counts, you know, and at least yes. getting together and eating together. So I, I'm not trying to say that it's bad. It's, I guess it's just a, also um, a measure of a different time. Um, yes. Well, yeah, I think it, the, the thing about takeout is it for me, it highlights that family dinner is something about the food, but the secret sauce of family dinner is really what happens once the food comes to the table. Mm -hmm. So having takeout, yes, it's not, probably going to be as nutritious as a made from scratch meal. And it's not going to be um, so memorable. It's not going to be as easy to create kind of rituals that um, where the food is some the recipes get passed on and mm -hmm. um, their favorites and so on. Mm -hmm. And with takeout, maybe people will order their own favorites. So that's, there's not quite the eating communally that you'd have. But that said, so yes, it's different, but it still, to me, counts as a family meal because if the family is able to tell stories about their day and relax together and um, you know have a good time and feel like this is an opportunity to uh, talk and be listened to, mm -hmm. then that's great. And you know, most of the benefits that come from family dinner will come from even from takeout. Um, so how many days a week do you think it has to happen in order to be impactful? Because everybody is going to have a week where today is not going to work. Um, and then you're, you're maybe even, um, uh, let, let, let me just make up something. So um, the, 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 the mom is taking a child to some kind of a um, a tournament in another city. So that, that person, they're gone. And so yeah. you have the dad with um, 
two children and the dad says, we're going out to eat. And then you go to a restaurant, you're not doing it at home, but you are eating together. Yeah, um, which counts. Does that yeah. count? Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, and then what if it just doesn't work that, that day and you, th- that particular week, you only have family meal five times instead of seven or whatever. What's the minimum that you think is impactful? So it's a it's actually a very complex question, and I'll I'll see what I can do to kind of cut to the chase. Um, in terms of what researchers say, five meals a week is sort of the sweet spot for gaining the academic and the physical, the nutritional, and the mental health benefits. Now, the five meals a week could be two breakfasts and a Sunday dinner and a Saturday brunch and, uh, you know, a quick family meal on Wednesday night, you know, that would be five. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, that's one answer that there's something, there seems to be something about five meals a week. I would say kind of clinically, uh, it's really, and in terms of the family dinner project, we say we meet families where they are. Mm -hmm. And if a family um, can only find Sunday evening as a time when everybody's going to be able to gather uh, and they have a great family meal. I'm like fully on board with that. Mm-hmm. And maybe if it's a great family meal on Sunday, maybe there's going to, you know, a child will say, can't we do this more often? And um, they'll find another day of the week. Maybe it won't be quite as grand. It might not be extended family and cooking for hours, but maybe they'll they'll come to add another meal. So I guess my with my clinical hat on, I say um, even one family meal that's intentional, that people look forward to, that uh, is a chance to tell stories, to... Uh, check in with each other, you know, that's worth having and supporting and celebrating. So what about you? Did you grow up with family meal? I did. did When I sort of said that there were several different rivers that fed into this passion, one of those was uh, my childhood meals. I I grew up in New York City in Manhattan. um, And we did not really observe many rituals. We didn't do Thanksgiving at our house. We didn't do, uh, it's a Jewish family. We didn't do Jewish celebrations particularly, but we did do family dinner, you know, ritualistically every night at 7 p.m. with my mother and father and my older sister. And, there was a lot of political talk. There was a, a lot of laughter, um, a lot of debate. And my mother, my mother was an artist, and she and a great conversationalist. And she hated being stuck in the kitchen, is how she would put it. Mm-hmm. So she would make meals very, very quickly. Uh, she was like a whirling dervish in the kitchen and it was, you know, one of those small galley kitchens in New York city and God help you. If you were in there with her, you could get knocked over. Um, and so she would quickly make the meal in order to get to 
the main part, which was the conversation. Right. And after years later, I gave my first dinner party and I made a, a roast chicken. And I thought, how long could this take? I never saw my mother spend more than 20 or 30 minutes. So <laughs> I brought the chicken out in all its bloody mess after 20 minutes to my <laughs> college boyfriend and, and our friends. And um, I'm still kidded about that first <laughs> First dinner party. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> well, I I had um, well, we always had family meals in my home, also, but I also had. Um, I'm half Sicilian, and my my mother is fully Sicilian, but my my father is not. And um, but food was really important, and it had to be fresh, and it had to be this, and it had to be that. In my grandmother's house, my mother was not quite so rigid about this, but my grandmother's house, you made mayonnaise, you made ketchup, you made wow. everything. Um, you, you made bread, you made pasta, you made just everything. Oh and so um, it was always delicious and it was always without preservatives or any of these kinds of things. And um, then my parents took over my grandparents' business and my mother and father were working there. And when in high school, then I'd come home from high school and I was, I prepared the food and there's a very high, of course, we're also in new Orleans where there's just a high standard of what the food has to taste like anyway. Sure, yeah. So we have the, the two kinds of, of fan of pressure for, um, really good food, the Sicilian pressure and the New Orleans pressure. And so it always had to be excellent. And um, so that was, I, I really cooked a lot with my grandmother more than my my mother, because my mother was, I don't have time for the mess you're going to make. Um, so I'm going to cook this and you're not. But my grandmother didn't care if there was flour everywhere and all of that kind of stuff. So you know, even when you were seven, you could do whatever. And oh, um, great. Yeah. And so anyway, that's, that was kind of my, my background. And then with my own children, um, I, you know, I sat them on the counter when they were still in those little carriers <laughs> and it was tell them I'm chopping bell peppers right now, <laughs> you know, and things like that. And as soon as they could, be coordinated enough they were chopping and doing all that sort of thing too so yeah well i mean that's just ideal in terms of i think raising up kids who um are going to be full participants in family meals i mean making them little stakeholders and um getting them interested in the in the process mm -hmm. uh and getting them interested in, you know, the, learning those lifelong skills of how to uh, nourish others, how to cook. Um, it was also interesting to me that there were kids that were their friends that would come over for a sleepover or something. So I had two boys um, and there was one child whom I, I remember very very distinctly because he was so difficult to have, not because he was bad, but he wouldn't eat anything except a peanut butter sandwich, but it had to be like a jiffy peanut butter sandwich. Couldn't be a healthy peanut butter that didn't have um, sugar and all that sort of thing. Right. In it. And grapes. Now he would eat those two things 
Otherwise, it had to be takeout because that's all he ever ate at home. So if we made pizza at home, he wouldn't eat it at, at our house because it didn't come out of a box. Mm. And he just just wouldn't. And so I always had grapes when he was coming over. <laughs> and he'd sit at the table with us and eat his grapes. <laughs> oh, yeah. My my kids used to long for some of the the going to other kids' families' houses where there was takeout or there were chicken oh. nuggets or whatever. Um, yes. Or they'd bring my sesame chicken noodles, which I was very proud of, and they would trade them for... Um, you know, at picnics, they would trade it for a slice of pizza or, right. um, <laughs> <laughs> or some of those snackables and things like that. That's yes. what kids wanted. They wanted it all prepackaged and everything. So, yeah, nope, you're not getting that. <laughs> I, I think they're glad now, but at the time it was really difficult for them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so tell me, um, how you spread the word about the the project, and also what do you do when you are having difficulty? Where people, you know, people are all, your your family is already sort of accustomed to not being together, and being able to say, "Well, this is what I'm having tonight," um, mm -hmm. not just eat what the family is eating, and um, what you know, what are some of your your games and hints and icebreakers and whatever that you've come up with. Okay. So just your first question of how do we spread the word? Mm -hmm. um, we work in two ways. We have a website, thefamilydinnerproject.org, and there are hundreds, probably thousands of free resources there uh, for families to use. And they're all designed to bring together what we think of as the three sort of pillars of a great meal, which is the food, of course, but also having fun and conversation. So food, fun, and conversation. Um, so we've got dinner tonight. So you can get uh, each night a recipe that takes less than 30 minutes, fewer than eight ingredients, a game to play that night, and a conversation starter. And then we have them budget friendly, so they pretty much comport with um, the SNAP guidelines of $2 per person mm -hmm. um, or $10 over the course of a five family dinners per week. Um, and we have a newsletter each month with a different theme, you know, how to get kids to talk beyond asking how was your how was your day or how to talk about romance or how to stave off eating disorders you know different themes um so there's you know that very uh rich website and then we work uh with communities so we work um on the ground with uh schools and clinics and uh, military bases and libraries and museums. And we uh, co-host community dinners where families come together and we cook together and we eat together and we play games and we have conversation and we explore what gets in the way of uh, the family's dinners and we problem solve. We I pull out the kind of the wisdom that's in the room about how they circumvent these common challenges that you and I were talking about earlier. 
Um, so we do community dinners and then we've been doing dinner in a box program, which we got started during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, we couldn't do as much in person and also as food insecurity tripled in, in most parts of the country. And so this is a, a program where we work with um, food pantries and emergency food delivery services, where we include some of our resources that help couples, couples and families bond and have fun together. So we put games in the boxes and tip sheets and uh, recipes and conversation starters so that when families get their box of food, they also get a recipe that goes with that food and they get some ideas about um, how to really make the most of it. Oh, that sounds sounds really wonderful. We have an exhibit right now at the museum, the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, um, and it's called Documenting Dinner. And it's um, based on the, the history of the menu, but which is a really, really old thing, starting mm. with when when rulers used to have banquets, I'm talking about um, before the common era kinds of, of things. Oh, yeah. So it's very old. So the rulers would have banquets and they would memorialize the banquet in some kind of way, whether they carved in stone what had been eaten or on clay uh, tablets, whatever, whatever their particular way of writing was so that everyone would know in the future this ruler had been able to eat this well and whatever. And it meant, you know, it, it gave everyone status because the ruler had been able to eat this way. So menus documenting what had been eaten is a very, very old thing. The idea of, of a restaurant menu obviously didn't come until the restaurant was invented in the late 17th, early 18th century. So, But that's what most of us think of as menus. But in the, in the vein of just documenting what you've eaten, um, there, uh, there, are, there are two families that have eaten Thanksgiving together for over 40 years. Now mm. I realize this is once once a year kind of thing, but nevertheless, they have a menu every time. They're beautifully decorated, but we have they kept them all. And then because they're they're two families, they actually have a meeting over dinner where they decide what they're going to have for Thanksgiving that year because they don't have the traditional <laughs> turkey meal. They make up a different meal every time, and then they keep. They keep notes of uh, like minutes of their meeting where they decide what they're going to have and who they're going to invite and how many people there will be and who'll be doing this, that, and the other thing. And I think that the the cast of characters in the uh, in orbit around them is different every time, but this these two families are together every single thanksgiving as i say for over 40 years wow and so we did an exhibit starting with the first menu which was torn off of a notepad but they still kept it and all the way to the ones today that are done in in calligraphy and watercolored and uh, <laughs> just you know they're elaborate beautiful things and um 
it's uh we've had a lot of people respond to this very very positively with the idea of next time i have a dinner party or something i'm going to have a menu and stuff i that's so i haven't really mentioned this to anybody but my husband but i keep a journal of family meal celebrations Oh, wow. I record what we ate and who was there and any funny or awkward things that happen. And um, often at family gatherings, I uh, introduce a game to the festivities. So I include that. Um, and it for me, it's a little bit of a history of our family life. Um, since we don't, my kids are grown. And um, uh, so it's a, you know, the, these bigger family celebrations are now when we reliably come together. Uh, yeah. So nothing so fancy as illustrated menus, but uh, a humble little journal keeping track of some of those. But I thought that was so fascinating, the idea of going back to the, the meaning of those menus, um, you know, thousands of years ago, and the notion that food symbolized status then, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And just thinking about all the different meanings that food can have, um, you know, how it's changed historically, but within a given family, how the meanings can change from, um, you know, being about nurture and caretaking to, um, you know, sometimes about control. If a parent gets worried that their child is not eating enough or eating too much, yeah. um, it can be about adventure and exploration um, of trying out new foods or trying recipes from different cultures. Um, so I find that always found that kind of interesting and uh, what part of what makes it a ritual that it does have symbolic meaning. Um, right. It's not just a feeding station where families come to, you know, get the job done and be on their way that it has, you know, a lot of meaning attached to it. Um, and that's really one of the things that gives it so much life and um, power and interest to families. And and part of it is is a way even to recognize individuals. For example, for a birthday dinner, you want to serve the things that the person whose birthday it is really likes. And um, uh, there are probably other things, graduations and other la landmarks in your life, you know, that you might want to celebrate getting a driver's yeah. license or something right. like that, you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's great. I love that you, that you document that in your journal. Um, and it's a special journal, right? That's yeah. just about this. It's, which... it's about this. Yeah. Yep. And I love that. How many do you have so far? Uh, I started it in 2017. Okay. So well, that's a number uh, of years. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, have Thanksgiving and Passovers and family birthdays. And uh, so, yeah. you know, that's, quite, that's a, quite a few yeah. menus. Yeah. Yeah. So Liz, you were also asking what are some things if uh, it's hard to get kids to eat different foods? Was that um, yes, when everyone wants something different. In other words, they don't want to eat the same food that has been prepared 
and they'll say, I don't like chicken or I don't like whatever. And I want to eat spaghetti today instead or whatever that, you know, that I think some people really do face that with their, with their attempts to make a meal. Absolutely. And it's really, I think, not sustainable for the person who does the cooking to have to short order cook that way. So um, if a family members keep up with that, it probably family dinner is going to fall by the wayside. Right. Um, So, I mean, one of the simple strategies is to have a family meeting and review all the different meals we've had and make a list of meals that everybody would be okay with. Um, It might be a very short list. Um, Another strategy is to make one main meal that then can be customized. So I used to make this very simple chicken rice soup. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I'd have little side things that you could put on that soup, depending on whether you liked fried garlic or mushrooms or, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, and if, you know, if a child was feeling that they just wanted a simple chicken rice soup, well, okay. But it meant my making just one, one main dish that night. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, goodness. Well, I have really enjoyed talking to you and our time is up, I'm afraid. I could talk about this a lot. <laughs> I have strong opinions. And I just think it's a wonderful thing. And I, I love the book, Home for Dinner. Um, I just think learning so much about what it means to people's lives, even though they're not, that's not really why you do it. You do it because it's just part of the ritual and, and it makes you feel like you catch up with each other and all of that. But it seems to be so very important. And I I love learning about all of that in the book. That was really wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us today, Anne. It was really a pleasure. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you, Liz. And thanks for the invitation. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue a part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Subscribe to this and other food and drink-related podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to keep up with me, Liz Williams, you can subscribe to my Substack newsletter, also called Tip of the Tongue, for more information about this podcast, recipes, and just what is going on. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.